You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For February 5th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nolder. One of the key features of many of the energy transition solutions we discuss on this show is that they can interact with the power grid in dynamic ways. For example, electric vehicles, water heaters, and heating and air conditioning systems can respond to grid conditions by reducing their demand when the grid is constrained and power prices are high, or increase their demand when the power supply is ample and prices are low. Or various devices, from grid equipment to solar systems to individual appliances, can provide grid power conditioning services like frequency and voltage regulation. Likewise, batteries and other storage systems can really do all of the above. But what makes all that dynamism possible is that these devices are connected via communication systems in order to send and receive signals from utilities and device operators. Those communication systems may be private networks like the ones that utilities operate to control their grid equipment, or they may be simply communicating over the internet along with everything else. Those communication links enable the benefits of connected systems, but they also expose those systems to the risk of being hacked, which raises some interesting questions about what kind of protections we need to have in place as grid modernization proceeds and more and more devices in the so-called Internet of Things, or IoT, become a part of the grid ecosystem. Or maybe it raises a more fundamental question. Should we be encouraging the adoption of smart, interconnected devices at all? Or would we be better off using devices that were not connected to communication systems in order to better ensure their security? This is a very deep and complex topic, but we're going to at least scratch the surface of it today by talking with a cybersecurity expert. Andy Bachman is a senior grid strategist at the Idaho National Laboratory, part of the U.S. Department of Energy, where he provides strategic guidance on critical infrastructure, security, and resilience to senior U.S. and international government and industry leaders. He's a longtime expert in this domain with a deep and wide set of relevant expertise, and I'm very glad that he finally agreed to come on this show and share a bit of what he knows. Then in the new segment of this episode, we'll note moves by another major money manager away from fossil fuels and toward energy transition solutions. We'll update Germany's plan to exit coal. We'll review more startling evidence of our changing climate. We'll take a look at a research note from a credit rating agency about climate risks to utilities. And we'll recognize some bold moves toward carbon reduction by a couple of major corporations. But first, our conversation with Andy Bachman, recorded January 13th, 2020. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Andy, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks very much. I'm a big fan of the show, and it's a wonderful opportunity to be on it with you. That's great. Well, you know, I got to say, I'm thrilled to finally have you on the show because you were somebody I had on my list of potential guests, really, from the very beginning, over four years ago. So I'm glad you finally agreed <laughs> to join the conversation here. <laughs> no worries. As I may have mentioned, it's always been an ambition of mine to podcast with the head chef of Cucini Nelderini. Ah. <laughs> 
Yes, indeed. Well, we do cook up a lot of things over here. All right. Well, you know, I suspect that what you do examining and guarding against the cyber risks to the electricity grid and other critical infrastructure is not very familiar to most of our listeners. So why don't we just start there? What is your work about? Okay, sure thing, Chris. And before I respond to that head on, let me build a little bit of context. Sure. First of all, I'm going to assume that almost all listeners are not cybersecurity focused as their day job. We should also assume that some significant percentage, though, are aware of the issues and may even have to deal with them at some point in their jobs. So to the extent that we have formed stereotypes about security people, I want to try to combat them up front a little bit and say, as the stereotypes go, I'm not an alarmist. So I'm not trying to generate more fear, uncertainty, and doubt as we talk about security. Always trying to arm people with knowledge that can help them do a better job in their day jobs, et cetera, and mm. for the organization, for the nation, et cetera. Secondly, a second stereotype for chief security officers and others in security operations is that they are the department of no. So <laughs> we want to do some cool new thing. We have some new technology. We want to connect to something else now because the data stream could be particularly helpful for us. And many times you'll hear security people cast as people that say, you know, that's a great idea, but we can't do that. The security risk is too great. So they're always cast as saying, no, I again, want to push off on the stereotype and say, not at all. The best security people are those who can find ways of helping the organization do what it wants to do, what it needs to do in ways that are demonstrably more secure, more resilient, et cetera. Okay. So what is the real domain here? I mean, we've got cyber risks to the grid. I mean, that alone is a little bit confusing, right? And then there are other domains that kind of overlap in there as well, right? Yeah, sure. I, mean, I think maybe we'll end up using the term infrastructure a lot okay. because that'll allow us to talk about the grid, sort of the mother of all infrastructures at the heart of electricity provision in the United States and other countries too. And then the minute we allow interdependencies, those systems and devices that depend on that electricity and the other infrastructures, the other critical sectors that the grid cannot operate without, such as water, such as communication, transportation, financial markets, et cetera. Now we're speaking more broadly. And the thing that binds all of those things together, or at least most of them, is the fact that they rely on industrial processes, 13 out of the 16 DHS critical infrastructure sectors that they identify rely largely on industrial control systems and embedded systems, meaning not traditional IT stuff. And the other three, like financial, for et cetera, they're massively independent on those sectors too. So in a sense, it's the fact that we're talking about relatively, to most people, esoteric obscure systems, industrial control systems, cyber physical systems, that's what separates this from some of the other security domains. Interesting. So obviously, when you're dealing with embedded systems, so control systems that are actually embedded in firmware and that kind of thing, that is indeed very different from the kind of things that we normally think about with connected devices or just websites or whatever, telephones that are connected to the internet somehow. But also there's these elements of control that really are not normally what we think about when we think about the risk of being hacked on our computers or whatever, right? Yeah, that's right. Probably a way to say it is that in the IT world, to include phones and laptops and things on the web, etc., you don't deal with 
real-time operating systems. You don't have to deal with these strange legacy protocols, some of them serial for communications. Hmm. And that puts you in an entirely different place. And with the embedded systems too, you're in an area where if you were going to be a cyber attacker, you have a lot more homework to have some level of mastery in the operational technology OT space than you do if you just fire up a how to hack a website manual online and get started. There's plenty of stuff to help people start on day one. If they're just sticking to IT, OT requires substantial, substantial knowledge. You're saying OT? Yeah, operational technology. Okay. Like one of my jobs is to brief folks on Capitol Hill, the senators, the representatives and their staff on the particular risks facing infrastructure, as we said. And I'll usually start, I'm going to assume they don't have much, if any, domain knowledge. So I'll start by saying, well, you know IT, right? That's information technology. That's the things that we all have come to interact with every day. Again, the cell phone in your hand, the laptop that you use, the databases, servers, applications, etc. I said to them, you're probably less aware of a different category of technology. It's related to IT. It's certainly every company has significant IT assets, but operational technology, OT, is that space where we're talking about the systems that monitor and control the other systems that are mechanical that for the electric sector make, manage, and move electricity that we all depend on. Right. And uh, to your previous point, a lot of these legacy control systems, the ones that especially that are embedded in firmware, I mean, these are written in languages that I think are basically obsolete. Like if you were to go out and try to hire a rock star engineer right now, you might call them a full stack engineer because they know everything from the application layer down to the OS. But you're talking about stuff that's way below the typical OS layer. Some of it written in like assembly language, probably. Oh, yeah. Everything you can think of and some that you can't probably. And it's to a point, it's partially a problem for us on the defensive side that we have to understand and learn how to defend these languages and systems, including the old operating systems that weren't designed with security in mind at all. The concept hadn't even come up at the time many of these systems were built. Because they were not written for devices that were connected to anything. Right. We hadn't invented connection yet. (laughs) We hadn't invented (laughs) internet protocol and the other forms of connectivity. Depending on how far back we go, these are all standalone electromechanical devices. But I will jump ahead a little bit and say, when people say, oh, some country is going to hack the grid and bring down the electricity in the country. First of all, that's a misconception that there is one grid. I mean, we use that term for convenience as shorthand, but the fact is there's a bunch of different parts connected in different ways and the different interconnections. But the second part is there's a value in diversity. I value all types of diversity, but in this particular case, we're talking about the fact that it's not a one-stop shop. Everything is internet protocol. Everything is on one version of Windows, for example. The fact is it's a total hodgepodge of different types of things. You'd have to become expert or at least quite knowledgeable about before you can bring a significantly damaging attack to bear. So we sort of benefit from the fact that we aren't completely modernized at any one time in any one place. (laughs) That's a funny way to look at it. Well, what kind of risks are we talking about here? I'm going to orient you and the listeners a little bit on where these comments are coming from, because that'll help answer the question, what kind of risks. The lab that I'm associated with, and there's 17 Department of Energy National Labs, 
The one that I'm affiliated with is in Idaho. It's called the Idaho National Lab. And they made their bones over the past 70 years or so researching, developing energy from nuclear processes. So this is after we showed that you can make a bomb out of nuclear materials. INL, along with Oak Ridge and a couple other labs, were pioneering how to make energy from it in ways that are safe and semi-affordable. Out of that came the idea that you can imagine when you're dealing with nuclear materials that it's a good idea to monitor them and control them from as comfortable a distance as possible. This is not hands-on work as much as possible. So the control systems knowledge and expertise and theory evolved very early at Idaho National Lab since they had this very dangerous mission. And as computers came to bear, solid state circuitry, the communications that you mentioned, we started to see that we could control these things from greater distances. One term of art that hopefully most listeners haven't had to be exposed to, but SCADA, or some say SCADA, which stands for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition Systems, help you monitor tons of devices over distance, monitor and give control signals to them. In the past, we used to have the people on site at substations who you could call up on a rotary phone, on a landline, and ask them for a reading of a system, a transformer, and give them a control guidance as well to do that. Now we've become hugely automated. The United States, maybe only Japan, is a country that relies more on automation than we do. And if we get to the topic of Ukraine in a minute or two, we'll be able to describe what that means. But INL's job as a national lab, and as the other labs too, is to help solve the pressing national problems that are beyond the scope of market, beyond commercial entities. These are national challenges, which are the super tough problems. And when the computers started to enter in mass into electric infrastructure, the Idaho lab took it on itself to become leading experts in OT, back to that term, security and resilience. That's what brings us here today. Okay. So to return to my question then, what kind of risks are we talking about here that you're focused on today? Primarily from a national lab point of view, we care about potential for nation state level attacks on critical infrastructure. So these are folks that are not the picture of the pimply teenage hacker who's just figuring out how to cause trouble out in the world. These are folks who can put hundreds or thousands of trained attackers in seats and point themselves, including advanced tools, at particular targets. Hmm. When you get the sense for how disproportionate that is, let's say you're a large IOU or a midsize IOU or Muni, and you've got a staff of, if you're lucky and well-budgeted, you get a staff of several dozen. Uh, the very largest ones, you may have hundreds. But their tasks are largely still about compliance, demonstrating compliance with the NERC SIPs, which we can unpack later if you want to. When they're facing an adversary that is that well-resourced, that's that patient, they certainly have a challenge on their hands. And that's the number one task, I would say, of myself and of INL. Second task for me, second job for me is to be a translator in between the thousands of scientists and engineers at INL and the other labs. And as I said, people on the Hill, people in the state regulatory commissions, PUCs, people in allied countries, and help them understand these issues and become better prepared for them. Gotcha. So when we normally think about conventional risk to the grid, we think about 
storms, right? We think about things taking down transmission lines or even trees falling over distribution lines. We think about squirrels <laughs> short-circuiting elements of the grid and causing blackouts. We think about thieves getting in and trying to rip copper out from poles and stuff. This is primarily a cyber level kind of attack that, that you're concerned on. Yeah, except for the squirrels, although we've adopted the squirrels as mascots <laughs> and we put little parachutes on them and little headsets. And so we have cyber squirrels that we're defending against. It's kind of tough, you know, when you get questions from regulators or from legislators and they say, you know, we spend all this money and every year we have more attention paid to cybersecurity for the grid. And yet, if my understanding of reports from NERC and elsewhere is correct, squirrels are causing more damage and more blackouts and brownouts than we've seen from cyber attacks in the United States, at least anyway. So it sort of puts a burden on the cyber folks at INL and elsewhere to, in certain cases, in certain rooms, to make these threats more tangible to those folks. So I guess we have to add cyber squirrels then to the lexicon that included throwdown squirrels. I think we should. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you and I first connected over a cybersecurity incident. As I recall, you found our first email exchange in your archives. So <laughs> well done on that, which actually occurred the day after an apparently coordinated sniper attack on the Metcalf substation in California on April 16th, 2013, which the then chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, a guy named John Wellinghoff, called the most significant incident of domestic terrorism involving the grid that has ever occurred in this country. And in that attack, the shooters destroyed 17 transformers and cut fiber optic lines running nearby, indicating that it was not just a couple of random yahoos taking pot shots at substation equipment, but rather it was a deliberate attack conducted by people who knew exactly what they were doing. And it took utility workers almost a month to put that substation back in service. But I don't recall if we ever learned who the perpetrators were or why they did it. Do you recall? Did we learn anything about that incident? It's funny. How many years has it been now? I think we're- well, That was 2013. Ourselves. So yeah, that was almost seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this will be an unsatisfying answer. As far as I know, my last brief from FBI on this is that they still haven't identified a suspect. Wow. That either means they really don't have one or they don't have one that they want to call out. But yeah, we have no response to that. And I remember in the early days after John Wellinghoff making those claims, you know, the lack of certainty over who that person was or who those folks were, that caused a substantial amount of agita in people trying to figure out what the intent was. Yeah. Right? We see that they're not total amateurs. They're bringing some resources and skill to bear, but what are they actually after? In hindsight now, seven years down the road, it seems like Commissioner Wellinghoff was probably a bit hyperbolic. I remember he and other national security talking heads came in and speculated on TV. This this is likely a precursor to a, a large-scale cyber attack bringing down the grid, right? And then that brings up that issue. So it didn't turn out to be that bad. If you don't mind, I'd like to share a couple of the outcomes that I think are positive things that we've taken from that incident. Yeah, I think I'd be interested in that. All right. Well, first off, immediately it demonstrated a certain level of resilience from the way the grid is architected, some of the diversity that we talked about before, that even though we lost 17 of 18 large transformers in an area servicing Silicon Valley, 
We lost them, by the way, because they shot holes in the tanks of the cooling oil, which all drained out. And that was a big part of the cleanup process when all that oil was spread throughout the substation. Mm. So we didn't have a blackout. We didn't have a brownout. And so immediately you could do some chest thumping about the intelligence of the way the grid is very redundant and architected. Folks that wanted to tamp that down a little bit would say, yeah, well, it was night. And there were some other reasons why demand wasn't all that high. I think nevertheless, I think it does demonstrate resilience when you can lose that much resource and still keep running and humming. The grid's adjusting itself on the fly. Yeah, they were able to route around it. Absolutely. Yeah. So to me, that's a plus of something that's bad. It shouldn't be taken to cause us to put us into a false sense of security, but it's still a plus. Other things that came out that were positive were we incorporated the lessons from that attack, from the physical attack, both the cutting of the fiber and the shooting, the kinetic aspects onto the transformers into the next GridX. GridX is a exercise that's run every other year. We just did one in 2019, the fifth iteration of it, where different types of attacks, cyber, physical, and other, are orchestrated across the grid, including parts of Canada and Mexico, and utilities get to play a version and then those lessons learned from how it went down are broadcast out to everybody the following spring. We're expecting those now for Grid X5. And so they started to add active shooter scenarios into the gameplay. And so you can imagine, like, say you got an alarm, which eventually they did get an alarm that this had happened, and you send some technicians to a substation. You don't want them to go in completely naive to the fact that there may be shooters there who have their best interests not in mind. So now you're starting to team much more quickly and regularly with first responders having a police presence in cases like this. So that's lessons incorporated into the GridX exercise run by NERC. Second thing is it spawned a physical security regulation. The NERC SIPs, which I can unpack in a second, the NERC SIPs are mandatory security controls for the bulk electric grid. And lo and behold, after Metcalf, not too long, we got NERC SIP 014 for physical security. And this meant that beyond the gates, guards, and guns, which we usually use that term to characterize physical security in that setting, the SIP is designed to better protect transmission assets, stations and substations, control centers. And then the language says, and the regulation says that if rendered inoperable, could lead to a widespread instability, uncontrolled separation, or cascades within an interconnection. So we started to have rules that the utilities in the higher voltage parts of the grid had to follow. They have to do plans for physical security. They had to have them third-party audited. And they had to show how they had updated and put in protections for those assets that they thought were the most important. So that's another positive that came out of it. At INL, where we have ballistics experts out on the site, the INL site, by the way, in Idaho is as big as the state of Rhode Island. They blow up a lot of things out there besides studying and irradiating a lot of interesting materials. Ballistics experts developed a barrier that was designed to be easily transportable and so you could move it if you had to do service around a substation and that I think in keeping with contemporary trends could be constructed from locally sourced steel. So it was just a design that you could then build 
if not in situ, then at least somewhat locally to the utility asset in question, and then be able to put it up, saving a lot of expense that way. Interesting. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On January 14th, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest money management firm with $7 trillion under management, said this, The climate change is going to require a huge energy transition. It's going to be 40 or 50 years. And he called on investors and corporate America to help combat climate change. In his annual letter to the world's biggest companies, he said, climate change has become a defining factor in the company's long-term prospects, but awareness is rapidly changing, and I believe we are on the edge of a fundamental reshaping of finance. Pledging to put sustainability at the center of its investment approach, from portfolio construction to launching new investment products that screen fossil fuels, he wrote, quote, If we are going to be fair and just, we also need to focus on this transition. Many people are going to be left behind. Fink's remarks attracted the attention of many in the climate and energy transition communities, and they do carry some weight, not just as indicators of what a whale like BlackRock intends to do, but also as warnings to any latecomers to the thesis that significant amounts of wealth are about to shift away from fossil fuel exposure and into climate solutions. But BlackRock has a decidedly spotty history of following through on such pronouncements, and I'm reserving judgment until we see their actual portfolio reallocations. Log into our website and see the show notes for this episode for more commentary on this topic. Item 2. As we touched on in the news of episodes 79, 83, and 93, Germany's long period of wrangling over its plan to phase out coal seems to have finally reached a conclusion. The German Coal Commission announced its plan to shut down all of its coal-fired power plants by 2030. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at MikeSugarMusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.